Hey, speaking of our online community, every week what we want to do is highlight somebody who is watching online who is not yet ready to participate in person um, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and so this week we are having Don and Cindy Palacelli do the scripture reading before we get into the sermon. So can I ask that everybody stand for the reading of God's word as Don and Cindy lead us in the reading. Good morning, True Life Church. It's nice to be uh, amongst our friends and brothers and sisters. And uh, we've been very happy to be asked to, to do the reading today. So um, we shall proceed with Luke 16, 13 through 15. 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is testable in God's sight. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us. If we need our paradigms shattered, would you do that? Because we know that you're after our joy, our fulfillment. You want to fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts and there are things that get in the way of that that need to be knocked down. So knock those things down today, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen. You may have a seat. Thank you, Don and Cindy, for doing that reading for us. We are in part seven of our series, Parables of the Kingdom. This is a series, if you're just joining us, about the stories Jesus told, which illustrate how God's kingdom operates, what it's like, and how it is challenging to our long-held Christian ideas, and in Jesus' day, it was the Jewish idea of how God's kingdom would come in. He told these parables to challenge their expectations of how that would work, what that would look like. So this is part seven of eight. Next week, we're finishing it, and when we finish it, we're going to receive communion together. We're going to have those individually wrapped little, 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 little things, and we're going to do that together. Uh, and those of you watching online, I want to encourage you to get the uh, communion elements uh, handy in your living room and you can receive it as we end this series. Um, I also said in the first service we're going to do baptisms throughout December. If anybody is ready to be baptized, and by ready I mean you've trusted in Jesus, and that's it. Um, we're going to do it. I haven't told my wife about that or gotten permission yet, but this idea came to me and I think she's going to be okay with it. We're going to baptize people in my kitchen in a baby pool. Uh, that's probably logistically the best way to do it, and we're going to keep it to 10 people or less. So let's say Frank wanted to get baptized. We would have Frank and maybe his family there, and we'd baptize Frank and put it on video, and then we'd show it in service and celebrate Frank. And then a different day, we would baptize, 
you know, Joe gets baptized and, and maybe have a few people there. So uh, we, we don't want to stand in the way. We don't want nothing to get in the way of people saying, uh, hey, I want to publicly profess my faith in Jesus Christ and baptism is the scriptural way that we do that. It is the sacrament that is commanded, uh, the first act of obedience after we trust in Jesus. And so if you've trusted in Jesus throughout this series or you will today or you do it next week, or you have in the past and you just never got baptized, I want to encourage you, uh, let's not let anything stand in the way. Let's not wait for that beautiful, perfect day on the beach in Hawaii. Let's, let's get it done. Huh? Let our church community celebrate with you. All right. So anyway, part seven, let's, let's get into it. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 16, that is what Don and Cindy just read from. Um, they did not read the parable that we're going to be in. They read a passage that sets up the parable. Uh, it sets up the theme of the parable and it sets up um, why Jesus is going into this parable. So we're gonna be in chapters, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. But the passage that Don and Cindy just read from was where Jesus was challenging the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders who uh, relied on their wealth, their money, their success, and their put-togetherness, we'll call it, as a means of justifying themselves. They believed that their wealth was a symbol that God favored them highly above others who didn't have that wealth. They believed their success and their status meant that they were highly favored in God's eyes and they thought it justified them. And Jesus is telling this parable to challenge their idea of what wealth is, to challenge our idea of what really justifies us. So he's gonna talk about money and he's gonna talk about hell, two things that people in church love for preachers to preach on. <laughs> We're gonna talk about them both. Now, honestly, I wanted to switch the parable up. This was part of the original plan in the outline. Um, uh, last week's uh, sermon, however, touched on these two themes. So as, we were, as I was preparing last week's, I was like, oh man, I don't know if I need to do next week's. Let me switch it up. So I was looking at some other parables, praying, and I just didn't feel like a confirmation to do any of them. And I got just led back to this one. I was like, oh, I, I, guess, I guess we need to kind of um, talk about these themes again in this particular parable. I, I know that some of you guys grew up in churches where they were abused. This, these topics of money and hell were abused. You know, banging on that drum every week, you know, you were told that if you didn't tithe and, you know, you were going to miss out on God's blessing, you were out on, of God's will. If you, you know, did give $100 watch, you're going to get $1,000 in the mail. Just, just, sending that hundred dollars you know so anytime we talk about money it might sound manipulative to you because of what you came from and if you hear a preacher talk about hell what you remember is some preacher when you were a little kid lighting a match and saying it's gonna be a lot worse than this in hell little youngster right and so you just got freaked out and so uh, we don't want to do any of that fear-mongering business um, however 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 we also don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater Jesus did talk about hell um, often. He told parables about money and hell. He did a bunch of other teachings about hell and money for a reason. Uh, I think it's precisely because he loves us. He loves you. He loves me. And the same reason I tell my kids don't go play in the street, right? He, he, he gives these warnings to us because he's after our joy. He's after our ultimate fulfillment, our, our everlasting long-term fulfillment. In fact, in fact, in fact, I want to show you a quick YouTube click, uh, clip 
Uh, don't play it yet. Let me, let me just describe it for a moment. Um, you guys know Penn and Teller, the magic team? So this is Penn Gillett. He's an atheist. He's a self-proclaimed atheist. But he's talking about um, how Christians, if they believe in hell, why aren't they talking more about it? Uh, take a look at this quick clip. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. As an atheist, saying how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize, to not share that good news that you, you, know, you claim to have. So that's what Jesus does. He warns and he says, hey, my kingdom is great. I don't want you to miss out because if you miss out, this is what it's going to look like and feel like and be for you. So we're going to talk about it. And who will miss out? Who will miss out on that kingdom? That's what this parable is about. So let's get into it. Verse 19. You guys ready? You following along? Got your Bibles, Bible app? Be ready. Be ready. Take some notes or something. Verse 19. Jesus said this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So beginning of the story, a rich man dressed in purple and fine linen. Purple was a uh, rare dye that uh, only the wealthy guy. It was not readily available. So this guy, it was a symbol of wealth. He was wealthy. Purple and fine linen. Fine linen is a reference to his undergarments. His underwear was fancy. Anybody have fancy underwear? Wealthy dude to have fancy smancy underwear. And he feasted in luxury every day. This was a, he, he, was, he was able to provide for himself in abundance just the, the best foods, just, just, just the, the riches of life he was able to provide for himself. This guy loved himself. He was able to give himself pleasure every day. Verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores. So at his gate was laid. Laid, what's that mean? He was crippled or lame in some way. He was, had to be put there by other people so that he could beg. And this was just outside the gate of the rich man. He's covered with sores. He's in agony. He's in pain. And he's longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the rich man would, this is typical of the day, they would finish their meal, they would get all messy, all the grease, all the barbecue sauce, and then they would wipe their hands on like a, a, a piece of bread as if it was a napkin. They would wipe it, and then that piece of bread would be tossed out to the dogs. This guy, this beggar, was longing to eat that piece of bread that had been used as a napkin by the rich guy. Just longing, I hope it comes my way. And dogs would gather, and these weren't Labradors, right? These were, these were street hounds. One guy, I, one teacher I heard him say, these are pariah dogs coming and licking his sores. So this was a disgusting, disgusting picture that Jesus is painting. This guy's life was just miserable. 
And it's in stark contrast to the rich guy who was just a few feet away inside his home, feasting in luxury every day. What a contrast. You see that contrast there? And Jesus said his name was Lazarus. Now, this is the only time in a parable, the only time that Jesus gave somebody a name. And some people even say this was not a parable because he was named. This, Jesus had to be talking about a real story that happened that Jesus is aware of. I don't think that's the case. Based on commentaries, people smarter than me, I don't think that's the case. I think what's going on here is Jesus is naming this guy because that's part of the reason he's telling the parable. The guy's name means, Lazarus means, the one whom God helps or God is my helper. And that's important for the parable. It's important to the purpose of the parable. But it's ironic at this point in the story for Jesus' listeners. Because so far, what, Je what Jesus' listeners, original audience would hear is, wait a second, this guy doesn't sound like the type of guy whom God helps. He's living a cursed life. That's a kind of a common belief at the time, was if you're living like this guy, you're a beggar, you're lame, your, your dogs are licking your sores. You must have done something to tick God off. You must have sinned in your past. Your parents sinned. Your uncle sinned. Somebody did something. Because God's curse is upon you. You are not one whom God has blessed. And you are not one whom God helps. But let's continue. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. Okay, so he dies. There's no mention of a burial. He probably wouldn't have gotten a burial, an honorary burial. He would have been his body tossed into a commoner's grave, maybe with other bodies. And yet, in the spiritual realm, Jesus is saying he was honored. Angels came and carried him. It's a picture of dignity being carried to where? Abraham's bosom. That's a reference to the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Promised first to Abraham under the Abrahamic covenant. God made a promise to Abraham. One day I'm going to create a new nation and through that nation all peoples can be blessed. When they come under that covenant. So this guy Lazarus is a recipient of the promises that God made to Abraham. He has come under the Abrahamic covenant. He is in paradise with Abraham. And even more specifically, he is... In Abraham's bosom, that's a picture of a feast. That's a reference to a feast. Uh, when they would have a feast and sit at a table, um, many of you know this, they wouldn't sit like we do in a chair. They would lie down. They would lie down uh, on their on side, and they would kind of be sprawled out there on the table. And so if Abraham's here, right, the next guy over would be here, and his head would be close to the bosom of the guy next to him. That's kind of how it... How it operated. So this guy's right next to Abraham. He's saying, Jesus is saying, this guy's like an honored guest at this banquet, this feast of the kingdom of God. He is Abraham's honored guest. He is dignified. This is a really special, special way to go, Jesus is saying. Let's keep, uh, let's keep going. Oh, actually... Hmm. Now let's keep going. Let's keep going. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So, so 
the rich man dies and is buried, okay? He's honored. He's got people coming and doing eulogies and dropping flowers on his casket and naming things after him. But in the spiritual realm, what happens? He goes to Hades, specifically to a place of torment where he looks up and he sees far away Lazarus feasting with Abraham. Now, technically speaking, Hades is not hell. Hades is not hell. The word wasn't used. There's another word, Gehenna, that was used for hell. It's the same word that's uh, used to refer to the lake of fire in Revelation. Hades is the realm of the dead. It could be hell and it could be paradise. Clearly, though, Jesus is saying here, this guy went to the realm of the dead that is different from where Lazarus went. He went to hell. He went separated from where Lazarus went. This is a contrast. Jesus is painting a contrast here. This guy didn't go where Lazarus went. He's able to see where Lazarus is, but he's in a place of torment. The Lazarus was saved. The rich man is not. And moreover, the rich man knew it. He could see that Lazarus is in there. He got in, and I didn't. I'm out. Lazarus is in paradise, and he's not. Which kind of is a turning of the tables from the beginning of the story where what was going on? Lazarus was on the outside of the gates looking into the rich man's feast, right? Rich man's feasting, enjoying himself every day. Lazarus able to see it, can't get in, longing to just get the scraps from the table. And now it's reversed. The rich man is on the outside while Lazarus is on the inside of the kingdom of God feasting with Abraham. And we have to ask ourselves why. Why did Lazarus get in and the rich man get out? Is it because Lazarus was poor? Does poor, being poor, get you in? Thankfully, no, because none of us would, would make it in there then compared to the world we're not poor. We don't know anything about this guy's character. We don't know anything about his faith. We don't know anything about his doctrine except for one thing, and that is his name, Lazarus. And that's why I think Jesus gives him a name because it's a, it's a symbol of the posture of his heart, one whom God helps, one who knew he was helpless without the mercy and the grace of God. He was helpless. He could not pull himself up by his bootstraps, and he knew it. He depended on the grace and the mercy of God. And while it did not appear like God was helping him in this life, on the outside, God's hand was made evident in death with angels carrying him off to Abraham's bosom. But now why did the rich man miss out? Why did he not get in? Let's keep going. Verse 24. He called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. I'm in agony in this fire. Now, is the fire meant to be taken literally? I don't know, to be honest. Fire is used as a metaphor multiple times in Scripture for multiple things, and sometimes it's very clear it's not meant to be taken literally. But if it's not meant to be taken literally, 
and this is very important, if it's not meant to be taken literally, it's a metaphor of something that is just as bad, if not worse. That's the point of metaphors. It's a metaphor of something just as intense. The torment that this guy is experiencing is intense. The torment of missing out on God's kingdom, of being separated from God's kingdom, of hell, is intense. That's what Jesus is portraying. And he calls on Abraham to send Lazarus. He calls Abraham father. Notice that. What does that mean? He was a Jew. He was born into the family of Abraham. He was born into the family of Abraham, and yet he's outside of the Abrahamic covenant. He misses out on God's promise to those who are true children of Abraham, those who trust in what Abraham trusted in. So not only might those who appear blessed on the outside circumstantially miss out on God's kingdom, but also not everybody born, born into the family of Abraham will get in. His wealth doesn't justify him, nor does his family of origin justify him. This is very important. His wealth doesn't justify him, nor does his family of origin. This would be super challenging to Jesus's original audience, especially those religious leaders that Jesus is talking to. His riches don't condemn him either, though. Let's, let, we got to be clear on that. Okay, like I said before, you and me, we're rich. We're wealthy compared to the rest of the world, most of the world. We are rich folks. So being rich does not condemn us. Abraham himself was rich. He was a very wealthy man. Very wealthy. God blessed him big time. Probably more wealthy than the rich man in Jesus' parable. The difference is that this man thought that his wealth justified him. He thought that this wealth meant that he did not need God. He was good on his own. He did not need to depend on the mercy and the grace of God. Remember what Don and Cindy read in the beginning. I want to read from it. This is back in verse 13, where Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You're going to worship something. It's going to be God, or it could be money, or it could be something else, but you can't worship both. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Your success, your wealth, your put-togetherness may earn you accolades and pats on the back from your friends and family members, but God sees into your heart and you are not justified in his sight, and therefore you will miss out on his kingdom if something doesn't change. What you are highly valuing is detestable in God's sight. You will end up just like the rich man in the parable, Jesus is saying. So again, it's not wrong to be rich, but this man relied on his wealth and he lived his life apart from dependence on God. His lack of mercy towards Lazarus 
was evidence that he had clearly not been touched by the mercy of God. His lack of compassion for the suffering of others was a clear indicator that his heart was not ruled by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God wasn't on the inside of this guy, even though he was in the family of Abraham. In fact, he still sees Lazarus as a servant, as a butler boy. Look, look again at verse 24, where he says to Father Abraham, have pity and send Lazarus to me. Like my butler to dip his water and dip his finger in water and cool me, cool my tongue, which tells me, and I know this is, sorry about that, it tells me, and I say this with all um, humility here and sober-mindedness, there's no repentance in hell. This guy doesn't repent. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't say, wait a second, I got it all wrong and I'm sorry. Scripture doesn't teach us that. I wish it did. I know there's teachers out there saying eventually everybody's, you know, even if you go to hell, it's only for a moment. It's only for a season. And then everybody's going to get a chance. They're going to turn. They're going to see the error of their ways. And they're going to call on Jesus. And they're going to be taken out of hell. And there's teachers. And I've read stuff. And I'm like, oh, I want to believe this. I want to believe this to be true. And I can't land there. I can't land there from the, the scriptures that the guy who came back from the grave, Jesus, who said, that's the authority, that's God's word. I can't land there without crossing off those scriptures and saying, well, I don't want to take it as God's word, Jesus. And especially this parable in particular, it seems to send the message that this guy does not repent. There's no repentance in hell. He doesn't want to repent. I think hard hearts get harder. It is the common grace of God over mankind right now that allows any of us, Christian or not, to have any softness in our hearts at all, right? You don't have to be a Christian to have kindness for different people. But when that is lifted and we are separated from the grace of God completely, I think what happens, and this is my theory, this is not the Bible, this is my theory. I would agree with C.S. Lewis who wrote a book called The Great Divorce and he, he kind of depicts it as when you're separated from God, you just become more self-absorbed than you already were. You just become more and more self-absorbed so that even if your friends are in hell with you, you're not partying with them. There's no bonds with them. You don't even care. You're just so self-absorbed because what happens is, and this is what the Bible does say, is that those of us who are in Christ become, become conformed to the image of Jesus more and more and more until the day of perfection and completion when we are the restored image bearers that we were meant to be. Well, what happens if we go the other way? Well, I think we become less human. Less and less and less human until we're almost like a subhuman species in hell, self-absorbed to the point where there's no repentance. We're unable to. We're unable to. Verse 25, Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted and you are in agony. This is important. Those who are saved, the worst that they will get, the worst that they will experience is now, in this moment, this lifetime, and then it'll all be over. No more pain, no more crying, no more mourning. 
But for those who are not saved, the best they will experience is now for a moment, this lifetime, and then it will be over. No more happiness, no more joy, no more celebration, no more bonds with other people. Pastor Shea put it this week. He said it like this. In the end, those who truly have the treasure of the kingdom will get more. Those who think they have the treasure but don't will lose even what they have. This man thought he had treasure because of his wealth, and he lost it all. Verse 26, let's keep going. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So not only is it eternal, not only are we unable internally to repent in this place of torment, but there's also an external chasm that exists. There's no, there's, you can't transfer back and forth. You can't move from one to the other. Nobody can cross over from there to us. If you live a life apart from God and say, I don't need God, I don't need his help, you will truly end up in a helpless state. And the self-absorbed who think they can justify themselves are the ones who go there. Verse 27, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. I got five brothers. Send Lazarus. He still thinks Lazarus is a servant. Verse 29, Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. That's the scriptures. That's the Jewish scriptures. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Verse 31, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they have their scriptures, the Jewish scriptures that warned about God's judgment and said, if, even Israelites, if you are not living a life dependent on the mercy and grace of God and you think you can do it yourself and that you're going to miss out, if they're not listening to those scriptures, they're not going to listen to Lazarus if I send him back from the dead. Their hard hearts are going to explain that one away. They're going to go, well, this is why Lazarus is back from the dead. They're going to do some mumbo jumbo to it and explain in their head why they don't have to listen to Lazarus because their hearts are hard. And what is Jesus doing here? He is foreshadowing his own resurrection. Remember who he's talking to, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, who justified themselves because of their upstanding status and wealth and reputations. And Jesus is saying, your hard hearts are so hard that even when I come back from the dead, you're not going to believe. You're going to find a way to explain it, justify not believing it. And one of the things they did as a result of this parable is that they had him killed. They handed him over to be crucified because they didn't want to listen to him, because he was a threat to their, their positions and their status and their self-righteous self uh, justif justifying of themselves. They saw him as a threat, so they had him killed, and he came back from the dead, and they didn't want to hear it. They wanted to kill his followers who testified of it. They didn't see that as good news. And yet they knew their scriptures. These guys knew the Torah. They knew the law of Moses. They knew the prophets. They knew what they said. 
But those scriptures pointed to their need for a savior and they refused to come to Jesus for that saving. And so too do we have people in our churches who look like the Pharisees on the outside. They're successful. They've got money perhaps. Maybe not as much as the next guy. Maybe they just read their Bibles really well and they know their Bibles and they vote according to biblical morality and they think that justifies them. And yet, and yet, they refuse to come to Jesus and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need your grace. I need the justification that comes only through you having died in my place, lived in my place, risen again, conquering death in my place. It is the upright, successful, even moral folks among us who Jesus is saying, they're going to miss out on the kingdom and end up in eternal torment. Unless, unless, unless something happens on the inside. Those Pharisees, those religious leaders, they didn't need Jesus to appear in the flesh in physical form. They needed new spiritual eyes. They needed the spirit of God to awaken them on the inside and give them eyes to see Jesus for who he is. The problem is that their efforts to justify themselves was working. That's is what is most dangerous. You see, it's not just that our attempts to justify ourselves are futile and don't measure up to God. It's that when we are successful at it, it actually blocks our view of Jesus. When our wealth or our education or our witty personalities or our gifts or our family of origin is actually working for us and earning for us the promotions and the accolades and the pats on the back and we're being celebrated at the high school reunions and our college friends think that we did so awesome in life and everybody wants to be around us and we're getting those promotions. That is what blocks our view of actually needing Jesus. Very dangerous when those efforts are successful. This is why I don't prescribe to the belief that every prayer we pray for blessing is going to be answered because in his love, I think sometimes he says, no, I'm going to tear that one down so that you recognize your need for me. You want a new job? You want that promotion? No, you're going to get fired so that you realize that your work ethic can't justify you. Because when it's working on the outside and everybody's patting us on the back, we think, oh, God must think the same way that these people do. God must think I'm awesome just like everybody else does. And that's not, remember what we read earlier, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The Pharisees thought they could justify themselves among others because it was working. People did hold them in high esteem. But God, Jesus said, God knows your hearts. God knows you're not justified. 
God knows you need to humble yourselves and get on your knees and say, have mercy on me, a sinner in need of salvation, in need of forgiveness, in need of grace. And so as we close, I want to ask that if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never cried out to him, you've never become a Lazarus, right? We've got to become a Lazarus. That's what Jesus is saying. One whom God helps, one who knows how helpless we are without God's help, without his saving mercy. If that's never been the cry of your heart, make that happen today. Make today that day. We're going to sing a song in a moment called I Will Boast in Christ Alone. And as we're singing, if you realize, you know what, I've never, I've gone to church and I try to live according to the Bible. Living according to the Bible will get you in hell unless the Bible points you to Jesus. Jesus said that to those religious people. He said, you study the scriptures and yet you refuse to point to the one those scriptures or you refuse to come to the one those scriptures are pointing to. So Ben, why don't you come on up here? If you are a follower of Jesus, you've trusted in him before, just remember this. Like as we sing, remember, no, this is what I boast in. This is what I boast in, Christ, in Christ alone, nothing but his blood. That's what I boast in. That's my justification. What am I doing, getting so worked up about this failure over here or worrying about this? What if I lose this? What if this falls through the, what if, what if? That's not how we're justified. We boast in Christ and that's, where freedom is found. We don't have to keep up our reputations. We're free to admit when we fail. We're free to admit, I've sinned, God, this week. I'm sorry, forgive me. I know your blood washes me clean. We're free to go to that person who we screamed at this week and say, I'm sorry, I'm st I still got this pride in me that I want Jesus to take out, but thank God he died for that pride in that moment. Anybody have the moment this week where you realize, man, I'm still some, I still got some brokenness in me that I need to be cleansed and I need Jesus to keep working on. Anybody? Put your hand up. Come on. Put your hand up. Not as a symbol of pride, not as a symbol of, well, this is just who I am. No, but as I this is what Jesus is working on. And he's going to continue to work on it until the day of completion. He promised that he, he who began a good work in you, he's going to finish it. And that goes for your spouse too, by the way. He's not going to finish you. He's going to finish your spouse if your spouse belongs to him. We forget that sometimes. But if you've never trusted in him, if you're not boasting in this and you're boasting in your Bible reading or your church attendance or the fact that you're a good neighbor or the fact that you're a good parent, praise God that you are those things, but they do not earn you justification in God's eyes. Make today a day where you cry out and you say, have mercy on me. I am a Lazarus. I am one whom God helps. I'm gonna come up at the end of this song and pray for those who might be making that decision for the first time. Let's stand and let's sing.